Welcome to Inside Medicine, a podcast for the intellectually curious and especially for those who want to get close to the truth in science and medicine. We have conversations with leading scientists, physicians, and innovators in the spirit of educating and inspiring you to take actions today that will benefit your long-term health. The future of medicine is here, and our goal is to bring it to you now. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Hi, I'm Jordan Schlain, founder of Private Medical, and today I'm pleased to introduce part one of two in our series on diet. In this episode, we dive into the science of the microbiome with Raja Deer, co-founder and co-CEO of Seed Health, a microbiome science company pioneering innovations in probiotics and living medicines. Deer explores the future of the microbiome's role in preventative medicine, the truth about how to have a healthy gut, and the bacteria that can lead to a longer life. For today's conversation, we're joined by my co-host, Silicon Valley naturopathic doctor, Dr. Natalie Walsh. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Raja, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. So what's interesting to me is the the microbiome is always been there. Uh, we just didn't know it. Kind of like in the old days, we talked about junk DNA. When I was in medical school, there was junk DNA. Well, it's, it's just junk. And and the microbiome was just bacteria in our gut. Now it's this, this thing. And why is it so interesting and important right now? But maybe you could briefly talk about why is the microbiome so you know, interesting to so many people right now? I think microbiome in many ways is the one answer to the problems of uh, preventive medicine or some of the concerns that have arisen on um, health span versus lifespan or a non-therapeutic or, or treatment-based modality for, for treating disease. There's so much within nutrition, diet, lifestyle that actually is the most important in terms of optimizing life. But it's so impossible to do to design the right trials or to do the right research or to design interventions that really work. So what I think microbiome offers is actually for the first time is something quantifiable that gives you risk factors and that actually gives you an index and assessment of so many different organ systems in the body. So and not just microbiome, but also microbiome associated barriers. So people first started thinking that it's just the bacteria. It's not. It's, if you look at the host response in combination with the bacteria, that's where I, I would say is, is exciting. And that's where you'd find your smoking gun. So to sum up, the simplest way to answer your question is before we were really looking at one data set, maybe you'd look at a biomarker, you'd look at one organ system. But now we're actually building quite rich combinatorial data sets, which to me are really functionally relevant and really translatable. One example I can give you off the top of my head is it is so remember when grail was first coming out or like early cancer diagnostics people had many the same question which is like well what's what what do you actually gain are you going to uh, lower people's quality of life by having too many false positives uh, do you actually increase the ability that someone gets treated more effectively and then i remember they came in with this pretty baller presentation where they just blindly were able to tell you with a very high level of accuracy which vials of blood had cancer in various stages and which ones didn't with a low false positive rate. And it's like, okay, when you have predictive power, that's interesting. That means that it's, it's, it's quote, like on the edge, or at least for me, I would say it's on the edge. So microbiome is now coming to that point. And the example I wanted to give was for major depressive disorder, which is still kind of, it's, it's psychiatric, but it's loosely defined as a high impact on quality of life. Many people are affected. 
Uh, treatments have variable response rate and typically the same treatment doesn't last or work for the same person and it doesn't adjust confounders. So when you look at microbiome alone, this was a paper in Science Translational Medicine, I believe, last year. Uh, it was able to predict about 60 or 65% of the people with uh, diagnosed major depressive disorder. Um, when you added in blood metabolomics, of which most of those metabolites are from the microbiome, and urine metabolomics, you got that predictive power over 95%. So now you have a system, now you have a microbiome, which is producing metabolites that enter into the bloodstream that are biologically relevant, and which are, are detected on, a, on, on one such path out. So between stool, serum, and urine, you can hone, hone in on this. That to me is enough to say from this information, we will find micro or bacterial organisms which increase or mitigate this condition. It's, 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 you have to be able to at least be confident enough that this data will, will take you to a place of intervention and it'll take you to a place of actionability when seeing things like that. And some version of that we're starting to get across a lot of different organ systems now in the cardiovascular system. It's very closely involved in how your body responds to uh, carbohydrates or sugar sugar levels after a meal. I think when you add barriers, so either uh, epithelial barriers in the gut or the blood-brain barrier, you can now start to find relevance for neurodegenerative conditions, which are quite strong. Cancer, I don't think it's at the point except for colon cancer that it's predictive, but you can predict responders versus non-responders to current drug treatments, for example, based on the microbiome and try to optimize that. So that's not as strong, but it's adjacent. Broadly defined, we live in these things called bodies. These bodies have a skin, they have a gut, they've got all sorts of other orifices from the ears to the vagina to these other places. And all of these parts of our body are lined with or have bacteria that coexist with us. And we call that a biome. The microbiome, I think you, you say the gut microbiome, that's the that's the bacteria that live uh, with us in our intestines. Let, let's, so let's start with how do we measure it and how do we in that measurement know if it's healthy or unhealthy? And if it's healthy, how does that help us perform better? And if it's unhealthy, like what are the common symptoms that, that a human might have and, and, and then what, what could we do to help it? So the most recent estimate is there's around 38 trillion microbial cells which is around one-to-one -one with human cells. I think uh, depending on what time of day it is, it's a, it's a little bit less than human cells, a little bit more. But uh, after a bowel movement, it's definitely uh, a little bit less. Most of it is in your gut. Most of it is when, when people talk about the gut microbiome, they're really referring to the colon, uh, which is where most of it is housed. Um, and even within the colon, most of it's housed in the lumen. So it occupies, it's, it's this... In, metabolically rich organ which is turning over it's processing your food it's interacting and signaling with your host cells it's providing nutrients for your host cells it's producing micronutrients we really trade shelter to this community of bacteria uh yeast fungi viruses as well um in exchange for what we believe is a uh, a, 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 a symbiotic relationship. And so in a, in a, in a perfectly healthy state, um, they help us digest our food and make nutrients and we give them a, a place to reproduce. That's the arrangement. It really studies in vertical transmission show that at least in the first third, within the first 30 days of life, you have, you get a lot of, uh, initial exposure of microbes from your mom. 
Um, it depends on how your your mode of delivery. It depends on if you're breastfed or not, and it depends on antibiotic use by either uh, your mom or by you in the early months of life. Those are the big drivers on shaping your early early microbiome. And then it usually hits what's called a state of steady state or maturity around the age of two. And then it continues to progressively build and grow through your childhood, adolescence, into adult and into adulthood or at the end of adolescence or in puberty is when you hit your most mature steady state version. And then you experience a progressive decline of diversity generally as you age. So that's the path of the microbiome generally, of the gut microbiome. So, so maybe we should talk about symptoms for a minute. Like, what are symptoms of a uh, microbiome that's that's out of out of whack or not healthy? I mean, you you generally would see, um, but not always. You'd see disruptions in in digestion. So, uh, stool quality is is a very simple, easy, free way of assessing uh, your microbiome. Uh, stool hydration. Uh, consistency, frequency of bowel movements, uh, presence or absence of abdominal pain, uh, gas bloating and, and discomfort, intestinal transit time, just the nuts and bolts of classical gastroenterology and, and the quality of daily bowel movements. I think people are quite shocked when they examine it and they find out how um, few people fit uh, the, that, that bill of, uh, uh, of uh, what's, I think, the Rome Four criteria is what's used mostly in IBS, but there's other related markers to just assess the the quality of of day to day digestion. So, so that's just bowel movements, fatigue, headaches, energy level. Are, are those symptoms necessarily tied to, uh, you know, bloating and and, and, and dysfunction? What if you had just like a, a minor change in your stool habit? Could that be affiliated with some fatigue or anxiety or something else? Is what I'm getting at. Is like, are these other symptoms? There, there are, there are, but I want to be very careful in answering that question because you could also have fatigue that's not attributed to the microbiome, and so it's it's not causative, and it's not always the microbiome if you have it, but the microbiome can explain presentation of symptoms across many different areas, most of which are um, are, are able to be perceived at least in. Uh, the set in, in the sense that we described, especially in the gut brain axis, is one area that jumps to mind. That's quite the research is quite convincing that there's an implication. I think that uh, again, like I, I I follow sleep research a lot, so I think it would be too reductive to say that if you suffer from issues with sleep, that it's causative that the that the microbiome is causative in that. But you know that disrupted sleep affects the microbiome, and a disrupted microbiome affects the ability the the circadian rhythm, for example, just quite. There's there's just quite a, a good base of literature now describing this. And so the problem is where do people go with that information? Today, you cannot look, sequence your microbiome, fix it in a certain way, and then sleep better. Nobody's done that. Right. And some of the other limitations are around maybe the other conditions you mentioned, right? We found these associations with things like depression, but I don't know of anything yet, correct me if I'm wrong, of any probiotic that is really conclusively shown to address depression, even though we think some of these changes in the microbiome are associated with it. So that's kind of where we're going. And the other the other thing is, I think microbiome. The reason why microbiome is is a rich discovery platform for pharma, but not a rich target for pharma, is because the time to intervene would probably be much before the progression uh, or cascade resulting in a uh, in, in disease. So I give you a per I can give you a perfect example. Um, 
colon can fusobacterium is very commonly found in colon cancer. It, it's almost uh, it, 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 it's it's I've seen data even to the point that um, uh, cell ca- cancer cells colon cancer cells form around fusobacterium, and even when it metastasizes and spreads to different organ systems, the fusobacterium nucleus or core still goes goes with it. I, I, I quite candidly, I'm blown away by the fact that a bacteria is so commonly found in something which is such a leading cause of of, of cancer and death in, in the Western world. It's just, and it's, it's usually almost always fusobacterium. And so that's the closest thing that I think is like a smoking gun. But uh, if you already wait until you have a pretty fair, late, the detectable colon cancer, it's probably past the point where you can target fusobacterium to prevent its progression. And so uh, maybe if there was a family history of colon cancer combined with um Fusobacterium also colonizes the oral microbiome. So maybe early in life, someone it, it, I could imagine getting a, a, an oral microbiome screen as well as a gut microbiome screen, and you monitor the relative abundance of this organism and other related organisms. And if you see that over time it's not going down, you can perhaps then try to intervene. Like that's one incredible way that if you just follow the science leads you to a very interesting and, and, and approach that I would use for risk mitigation if you were. Uh, concerned about mitigating risk, but that's not a rich target for a company. It's too late for someone to come with a colon cancer therapeutic based on that mechanism of action. And so that's why I think that microbiome is very interesting because it's perhaps going to accompany a change in the way that we think about health, but I don't necessarily think that it fits in perfectly to the current approach of blockbuster drugs. So, 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 what would you recommend? So, you, someone has a baby, and you said the microbiome is forming, and they're going through stages. What, what should we be feeding our our kids, and and what should we be eating at like age thirty or forty or fifty? What, what are the healthy things that 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 make our microbiome like vibrant and inspire <laughs> those guys inside of us to give us a healthier existence? Uh, g- g- generally, you find that an optimal microbiome is heavily enriched in carbohydrate and complex carbohydrate metabolism genes. So complex, non-easily digestible carbohydrates is probably the best uh, single food from a diverse source. It's probably this, the best single tip that people can have. Actually, starting starting from the minute that solid foods are tolerated all the way through to end of life. So that's a very easy, straightforward answer. And 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 there, I, don't, I, I recommend you go broad. I recommend you go diverse. I recommend you don't overthink it. And it's more important that you're consistent and regular than um, exclusively eat chicory or exclusively eat, uh, uh, you know, uh, any any one particular source. Starting from a very early age, though, is important because breast milk actually is a very rich source of of uh, milk oligosaccharides, and so there's around 150 to 200 different types. Which think think about this. You know how expensive it is for a, for for just a host to make milk especially after given birth when when the child's dependent on the mom it's it's a very expensive food like from a um allocation of resources standpoint for the mom to make so a third of the carbohydrates that are in breast milk are are not even a nutrition source for the baby they're too complex the baby doesn't have a system to digest it and so they're human milk oligosaccharides which are utilized by bacteria for a developing infant microbiome i think that's a fascinating fact and so that that is where the initial exposure to complex carbohydrates comes of a few different families and shapes and sizes. And it, at a population level, it varies when people come from, where their genetics are, and what kinds of 
oligosaccharides that the mother actually makes. But this is something which is conserved actually at the at the level of most uh, complex mammals. And I think that's a, a great uh, a great great place to start. Talk about fermented foods for a second, because I've heard a lot about fermented foods are good for the microbiome. So is it true? Why? What kinds are are some better than others? Do we look for special strains? Back to the string question. I I love fermented foods. I eat almost. Uh, every every type but it's mostly because i love the taste i love the tartness i love the acidity just i think they're fantastic some studies recently have looked into the effect that fermented foods have on the microbiome and in particular inflammatory status of the host and uh, some of them have even compared it to things like high fiber diets or changes in uh in functional markers it you have to be a little cautious on thinking that uh, a ferm- any fermented food is going to have a persistent change in your microbiome, but it also doesn't need to have a change in your microbiome for it to be healthy. The one flip side, the counterpoint to fermented foods that I want to present is that there's also not, it's not a free lunch either. So uh, I'll use a fermented beverage as an example. So let's take like a, a kombucha, a kombucha, which is a fermented tea, for example. So if you look at some studies that look at the um, metabolites that are present before and after a kombucha fermentation, there's a rich, there, there's a dramatic change, and that's obvious. The the kombucha culture is breaking down the the uh, tea polyphenols and other compounds and converting them into secondary and tertiary metabolites. But in increasing those levels of secondary and tertiary metabolites, they utilize and eat up all of the primary metabolites to make them. So, yes. There's a lot of new metabolites that you're now delivering into your body, but they're metabolites that are being made by something outside of your body. I'm very curious. No one's actually designed the study to know it, what, what your own microbiome would make of those metabolites if you just drank the tea before the fermentation. And so that's just a nuance that's very important to bring is like, don't replace uh, things like, like, let's just, just tea as an example. I wouldn't stop drinking tea to only drinking fermented tea. I would make sure to drink both tea and fermented tea because they both have their own benefits. Kombucha is just a post-fermented product, whereas the tea is a pre-fermented product. That's the main difference between those two things. And so some version of that is my answer to all fermented foods is, well, yeah, okay, it's good. Sauerkraut's great, but also it's good to, like your own microbiome would want to degrade all those same base oligosaccharides from the cabbage as well. And so don't deny it the opportunity to do that either. So maybe another question for you is, and and I know, Natalie, you know the answer to this, but for our audience, you know, probiotic versus prebiotic. Um, there's so many... Postbiotic. And postbiotic. There's a lot of biotics out there, and, and I feel like we're losing our handle on what anything means anymore a little bit, or these things are being marketed in ways that like create... A lot of noise, not a lot of signal. Yeah, there 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 are crisp definitions, but it's it's also very heavily marketed, so it's it's kind of both. But probiotics are just live organisms. So if it's anything that doesn't have live bacteria, which deliver a health benefit, it's not a probiotic. So bacteria or live organism and probiotic, that's pretty clear. That's unequivocal. Uh, prebiotic. Are, are substrates. So that's the closest thing to food that bacteria in your gut already use. Uh, so prebiotics, there's t- tons of foods that are rich in prebiotic. My general thinking on prebiotics is that if you eat a diverse, rich diet, you do not need prebiotics. You get plenty, you get way more, like just take like a fiber, like, um, like a, some prebiotics that are marketed are like 
300 milligrams or like 500 milligrams of like, an, like an inulin fiber, like a fructooligosaccharide, like that's a fraction of what you would get in just one general serving of uh cruciferate, like a complex carbohydrate based meal. So th- that that's a little marketing where if they, they should like, well, ask, okay, well, what prebiotic is it? Right. If it, there's some that are really, really good, like I think polyphenols are very interesting prebiotics because it's very hard to get high amounts of polyphenols unless you're drinking five, six, seven glasses of, of let's say like a tea. Um, my favorite is are, are the are polyphenols from um, from berries and from uh, and from uh, uh, pomegranates. You know things that have like a, a, a very rich, vibrant color, but are also again very tart and acidic. Those are my where where I go to in in the food food world to to find a lot of nutrition. Um, and those are very interesting because you'd have to eat like, like no one's eating like, uh, like a hundred raspberries or like 10 pomegranates per day, but to get to, or, or drinking like 10 or 15 cups of green tea, but to get to those levels of individual stuff, that's really what it would take from a consumption standpoint to start to modulate the microbiome or to start to produce really high levels and detectable levels of like metabolites of interest. And so I think that's very interesting is how the microbiome or that things from foods can be amplified or can be concentrated. I think that those types of prebiotics can be very interesting. Um, but if they're fiber-based, I would just ask, uh, what's it for and, and what's your diet before I would uh, I would purchase something like that. Postbiotics are the newest um, kind of buzzword of the lot. And a postbiotic just means a post-fermentative byproduct. So most postbiotics that are being marketed today are like, I don't know, there's some people selling like butyrate, for example, which is marketed as a postbiotic. But my concerns with that is really the dosage. I mean, you're producing quite a bit. I, I think you. Pro- I think a healthy gut microbiome produces over a gram of butyrate per day. I don't know the exact number, but I, I, I do believe it's over a gram. And so the question is like, what's ingesting like 150 milligrams actually going to do? Like, yeah, it's it's maybe it tips the needle a little bit, but I think that no one's done really good dose escalation studies on postbiotics for, for at least as a supplement for me to be totally saying run and, and, and go grab this and you should take this right now because it's going to do this and that's going to be great. I, I don't know if I can say that for something like a postbiotic just yet. What is the tie to longevity, if anything, in the microbiome? Do we, do we have any science there that, that the microbiome, a healthy microbiome leads to a healthier and, and potentially longer life. And I don't mean by like living to 120 life extension, but like making it maybe to your naturally programmed expiration date in great shape. Typically people who live and age well have gut microbiomes that resemble much younger gut microbiomes. And that's, I think just the first ticket to entry is uh, it's not so much that uh, your microbiome gets richer and richer as you age and therefore it protects you. It's that either it doesn't get worse and worse and so you're protected or it gets worse and worse. And then you see it correlated with all kinds of other conditions that uh, take you before the microbiome. Um, that's at least kind of like the vulgarized version of, of what we're seeing. I think that uh, we have a paper right now that's under review in a Nature Family Journal on, on, a, on aging clocks, using the microbiome as an aging clock. Uh, and actually ends, trying to answer exactly that question is what the people who but not, but not just the microbiome. So it's 14 different organ systems and there's clocks for each one. And so we're trying to see what the mic, which the microbiome actually correlates to versus what it doesn't. And there's some that are much stronger than others, like cardiometabolic outcomes or exp- the microbiome correlates extremely strong, strongly. If you have a, if you're in a high risk of a cardiovascular event, 
blood pressure it correlates incredibly interestingly um um non hdl cholesterol and uh ldlp it correlates very interestingly um neurodegenerative disease it correlates very interestingly and um uh glucose response and insulin sensitivity things like that it correlates very strongly with age um another very interesting study that i found r- with the microbiome in relationship to aging is that uh, centenarians seem to have a very uh distinct microbiome profile and actually it's heavily heavily enriched in some organisms that are found in probiotics and also in infants so uh bifidobacterium are are uh, to to me a very special genera of bacteria because uh there's the first to emerge and so in your in your in your windows of immunological development they're some of the first organisms that your body's in in close contact with and so uh in centenarians there's a study that was done both in uh, I think Canada the United States and in China and it looked at at a a large number of centenarians and it highlighted uh uh, extraordinarily high amounts of bifidobacterium in centenarians compared to um non healthy elderly so do they think that that's something that's conserved in these centenarians that they maintain their bifidobacteria throughout their lifespan or is it some other phenomenon maybe happening with healthy aging or do we know that's a really good question i, I think that's really hard to say because uh we wouldn't have had any earlier reads of these centenarians to 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 screen right yeah so 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 that works kind of starting a little bit more now i think probably from 2012 2013 are probably the first good cohorts where you can start to establish early life microbiome so it's going to be a while before we get end of life data for those people um but uh, the age range that we're studying at least in one of our bigger cohorts is 40 to 70 and it's enough of a difference that you can start to see and now it's it's much more than 72 but at least it around 40s when people were initially recruited, which is when you can start to see transitions change to take place. Um, and there's also sex-specific differences. There's also um, tr- tremendous sex-specific differences that I think get overlooked. I think people talk about microbiome personalization, but then um, shy away from discussing uh, the applicability of uh, of uh, sex when it comes to, to personalized medicine. So you, re- you really do see, especially around menopause, a sex-specific response. Uh, that tends to dissipate after. Yeah. So tell me, what do you think is the next big thing coming? What should consumers in particular be keeping their eyes peeled for? I think we're going to find that the relationship between diet and microbiome um, is a lot more intimate than we thought. And that the combination of personalized or more optimal diets in combinations with maybe more exotic probiotics um, might be a, a, a very interesting evolution of fermented foods, yogurts, uh, maybe single-strain probiotic products. I think that if you continue along that path, you start to find um, uh, diet microbe pairs uh which are 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 just wildly optimal um and so i think that that's a very interesting um framework for thinking about uh about general nutrition and health i also think that we're going to find that barriers are very important and that we've been abusing them so by that, by that i mean 
it could be it could be your your gingival it could be your gum the gums in your mouth for example right like yeah the gut mucosa the vaginal mucosa the blood brain barrier maybe mm-hmm. so i so i can just tell you as an example like uh, we published a paper a few months ago on dishwasher deter- on on uh, rinse aids that are found in in professional dishwashing detergents it found a pretty dramatic signal uh in the rinse aid and the cycles of professional dishwasher detergents that leaves a lot of residue uh, which does induce quite acutely uh, barrier disruption uh, and an inflammatory response in the gut. I, I, I think that's very interesting. I think that there's we don't we don't fully appreciate the exposure even in in, in tap water uh, that you might have that could uh, have an effect on barriers of the body that are very simple um, emulsifiers. Right now, we have a research program on emulsifiers that are let's say you pick up a uh, like a milk alternative that you think is healthy, but in order to bind the almond with the water, you need to use lots lots of uh, emulsifiers. That's what an emulsifier does; is it serves as a binding. Uh, but uh, that those emulsifiers then have a very similar effect on on cells that line your gut because it's uh, at the end of the day it's surface tension and it's the same effect that it does to bind things together. Also affects those cells in a way that induces mild permeability. Now I'm not I I don't know the extent to which recovery we we haven't gotten to the human models yet to to like the, the the randomized and controlled and interventional side of that yet so it's still basic science but that's very that's still very provocative right how how emulsifiers like polysorbates for example are allowed in up to 1% in in ice creams in the United States uh we found that this effect was at 0.1% um that's very interesting. We found that uh, in, in in dishwashing detergents and rinse aids, the effect was in dilutions of one to f- one in fifty thousand, and the residues that were found were one in five thousand. So these are dramatic amounts above the exposure threshold, which are able to cause this. Um, another really good example, let's say, is uh, is um, surfactants. So you just take something harmless like brushing your teeth if you're using. Um, Sodium lauryl sulfate is a common one that people try to avoid, for example. Yeah. Yeah, but like in Crest, for example, or if you looked in another in another toothpaste, you don't think of it. I mean, the, the, sometimes I think it's up to 3%, and it should only be used on your tooth. If you use it on your gum, your gums are far more fragile, and so you can induce something much quicker than you could, let's say, in another tissue. And so I, I really want to caution people now because I think that the clean movement uh, got a little bit out of control and left people kind of rolling their eyes a little bit like, oh, okay, it's bad for me, but how bad is it really? Um, but I think that if we can look at molecular uh, toxicity and um, inflammatory response in a little bit more fine-scale model, I think that we're going to find actually this is something we should look into, not with not not out of fear, but just be a little bit more aware and, and look into it a little bit closer to hopefully try to modify some of our behavior and consumption patterns in, in response to this information. Yeah. Keep our microbiomes more protected for longer because that seems to have, have a health benefit too. Well, this was amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of these insights with us and talking about your research and where this very deep and complex field of biology is going. And we really appreciate your time today. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside Medicine, a private medical production. We hope we've inspired you to think differently about your health and the healthcare system. 
please subscribe to our podcast and our medical dispatch, which you can find on our website, privatemedical.org. You can find the link in the show notes.